707. Uh, you know where we are. 95.9 True Oldies Channel. It's time for Ira on Sports. Mike Balsamo here with you as well. Ira, we've got an interesting show on tap for you tonight. Because neither of us are in the studio. We're both very busy. I'm in Hartford, Connecticut. Having a great time trying to bring back the Whalers franchise. I'm not doing that great of a job. And, you know, I really can't I. But what are you doing? Because I know you couldn't get here tonight. You're stuck in New York. Yeah, so I'm in Cape May, New Jersey. So we're going to have uh, later on in the show Kelly Pavlik, who was the former middleweight champion of the world. And right up the street in Atlantic City, he had one of the greatest fights of all time, beating Jermaine Taylor to become the world uh, middleweight champion uh, in, in a fight that I was at. Uh, I'll never forget, and uh, I know a lot of other people were at that fight and watched it on TV, and uh, will consider it one of the best fights they've ever seen. We're also going to have Greg Gattuso in just about, uh, I'd say, 12 minutes. He's a head coach at Albany, and that's a SUNY school, which is State University of New York. I happen to attend a State University of New York school, so I want to pick his brain as well. This is all coming up, Ira, on sports tonight, but first, Ira. My New York Yankees, I know you're not the biggest Yankee fan, but these guys are making moves. The Red Sox have been on a tear 18-3 and in their last 21 games. The, uh, the Yankees, they're doing the best they can, and they're treading water, but they seem to be stepping behind. We made a big trade two days ago for J.A. Happ. What do you think about this? And he looked pretty good in his first start. Well, I think that last year, uh, the Justin Verlander trade, I think, has really uh, made... I think if you're a starting pitcher today on a team that is not in contention, you are on the market. Like, I don't care what your contract says, I don't care what you are, you are definitely available because every starting team, every contending team, except for the Astros, is looking for pitching. And if you're available, they're going to go after you. And, and the Verlander, Verlander last year, people, they look at Verlander now as like unhittable, the greatest, he's amazing, whatever. But last year at this time, he was 10 and 8, 382 ERA, and people said he's on the downside of his career. Traded to the Astros, reinvigorated in a pennant race. He finished the season 5 and 0 with a 1.0 ERA, went in the playoffs, was 4 and 1 in the playoffs, and they won the World Series. Uh, that was what, and that's what I think everyone in these, in these trades is trying to make with these starting pitchers, bringing in some relievers, is get a pitcher who's pitching in a situation where it doesn't really matter, get 40,000 fans in the seats, get them excited, get them excited about winning, and then have, a tremendous, have that person take them to the, the World Series. No, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. And Justin Verlander's career was reinvigorated. He went from basically a non-factor to being uh, in Cy Young contention again by moving teams. However, Jay Happ, this is one of those guys where I kind of worry because he's never been a stud. And uh, I want to talk to you about this for a second. I don't like his pedigree as much. He's never been at the top level. The, the Yankees don't have to give that much, so that's fantastic uh, as a Yankee fan. But for me, I don't see this guy fitting into our five-man rotation going forward, Ira. Maybe back end of the bullpen or front end of the bullpen, but what do you think? Well, I think he fits in the five-man rotation for the regular season. The question is, in the playoffs, when you're pitching three, four pitchers, is he going to fit in? Um, I, people are not fans with Sonny Gray. 
the, the Yankees starting pitchers, and Severino's had two horrendous starts back-to-back. I'm not saying he's going to take Severino's position, but the point is they've had so many <laughs> pitching problems. Uh, who knows? And if, this, if Jay Happ has uh, five great starts at the end of the year, then I could see him pitching in game three. Uh, in, in, in the, in the, or he, first, he's not going to pitch the wild-card game, but if they can win that wild-card game, then they get through. I mean, he was 20-4 and four with the Blue Jays in 2016. It's funny that he's pitched for the Phils, the Astros, Seattle, Pittsburgh, and Toronto. He's pitched for a lot of teams. Um, this year yeah. he's been 10-6 and six with a 4.05 ERA, which is not really that good, but not really that bad. He was in the All-Star game. I think the Yankees are doing for the same thing. Give him an environment where he's going to be excited to play. They could not get DeGrom from the Mets. They could not get any of these superstar pitchers, and it was just not going to happen. Uh, they felt that Hap was the best one out there for the price they had to pay. 712. This is Ira on Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here with you as well. Just in a couple of minutes, Greg Gattuso, a head coach of Albany Football, going to join us here on the True Oldies Channel. You know, Ira, the Yankees, I think, made a sneaky move. Viewing Zach Britton from a, an in-town rival in Baltimore. We'll talk in a second about how the ALE doesn't like to deal together. But also, we don't like to deal cross town about the New York Yankees and the Mets. That's it. We kind of stole, and I say we, being a Yankee fan, we kind of stole them. Zach Britton's going to be an asset for the Yankees coming forward. Well, I mean, Britton, I mean, he's one of the best relievers in the game of uh, the last four years. It was 37 saves, four, 36 saves, 40. Two years ago, he had 47 saves with a .554 ERA. So he was. Tremendous. And then you add it to a bullpen that already has Chapman, Robinson, Batanzas. Uh, it, it's I mean, the way the Yankees, it's almost they're talking about basketball being positionless. They're almost with relievers, positionist, positionless pitchers, where it's okay now to bring in relievers in the fourth inning and the third inning and the fifth inning. Perfect and, way and to phrase it. Yeah, I think that's what they're, go, they're looking for is that we're just going to have so many relievers that if Sonny Gray in the playoffs, and you saw it in the playoffs last year with these starting pitchers. You saw what the Dodgers did when they took Hill out in the first inning. I mean, if they, if they feel like their starter is not on it and he's not Justin Verlander, they're going to pull him in the second or third inning and just go relievers. I mean, Tampa Bay right now is some games starting the game and just doing relievers their entire game because they realize that starters are not going nine innings, they're not going eight innings. I remember when the Yankees signed Roger Clemens, and, and people were saying, oh, Roger Clemens right now is only a six-inning pitcher. Well, a six-inning pitcher right now is, is probably all the starting pitchers in the, in the American and National Leagues. I mean, that's what they want. They get six innings, they're, they're ecstatic. So I think what the Yankees are sort of saying is, well, our starting pitchers could be four-inning pitchers, and if we can just get four, three to four innings out of our starters, we have a, enough of bullpen. And Britain, his first start was tremendous. So I see what the Yankees are trying to do. Now, they are going to be in a, in a difficult, and if they have to go into the wild card game, could you imagine if their starters, say they put Severino in the first inning and he gives up three runs, they are going to pull him, and they're just going to go reliever, reliever, reliever that rest of the game to win that must-win wild card game. No, you absolutely nailed it because that's what happened last year. And I thought the Dodgers' biggest mistake was not pulling you, Darvish. After, you know, you let four runs in the first inning of a must-win game, you need that bullpen. You need those guys behind him. And I think that GMs are starting to take notice of this. And listen, if the Yankees had gave up Glaber Torres for Zach Britton, I wouldn't be a Yankee fan anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't be a Cashman fan anymore. But I read you nailed it. This is the way the game's going. Give me four and a half innings. Get me to the fifth inning, 
and then I'll show you my bullpen that will just shut you down. And I think that's what the Yankees' strategy is now, not wanting to give up the Glaber Torres of the world. Right, and and I think that another move, you know, in terms of what they're doing, they just could not get Degrom. We 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 talked about this earlier, but uh, they would love to get Impossible. Degrom from the Mets and Wheeler, but the Mets did not seem to want to deal with the Yankees, and whatever deal they were going to have, they wanted too much. Whereas you were able to get, in this case, they were able to deal with the Orioles and the Blue Jays, both in their same division, but they're so far back that it doesn't really matter, and they're just looking to improve. That, I mean, from that perspective, they're like, we're 40 games, Baltimore's going, we're 40 games behind the Red Sox, so it doesn't matter. Let's get some prospects that might work out and make that trade. Um, the deadline is, you know, very coming up in the 24 hours, so we're going to see some, you know, definitely more trades, and trades are happening. The Yankees traded Andy Warren, Andrew Warren today already, another reliever. So you're seeing, a, I don't think we're going to be any big time moves left. But what the, I like the Happen Britain move for the Yankees. I think that they were the, probably the best move they can. They didn't give up any of their great young prospects, and I think it, the Yankees definitely, I think, won this uh, trade deadline so far. No better way to put it, that the Yankees have won the trade deadline. This is coming from a Yankee fan. Now that you look at this bullpen, Chapman, Robertson, Batonzas, Britton, Warren, Holder, Green, it's going to be really difficult, and it's the one advantage the Yankees had over the AL. We've always been a bullpen squad facing the Cleveland, Houston's, and Boston's of the world who are going to beat us with their bats and their starters. Yankees know what they're trying to do, and I really like the Britain move. 717 Ira on Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. A couple of other moves happened, I. Cole Hamels moving to the Cubs. I got to tell you, I was never a huge Cole Hamels guy. I loved him as a prospect. I don't think he even blossomed in Philly. Texas eh, didn't do what I wanted, and he's on his way to the Cubs. Well, I, I, I like to, I, I totally disagree with you because I'm a big Cole Hamels fan. I thought he was key for the Phillies to win the World Series. I know that he's been, this year he's 5-9 and nine with a 4-7-2 ERA with the Rangers. His Texas career hasn't been as what it was in the Phillies. I know he's 34 years old, but he has 152 wins. Uh, the Cubs really didn't give up much for him. And for a team that, needs to, that felt like they needed to add another starter, uh, again, another person was on the market that made sense, had experience, uh, postseason baseball. Uh, I think a very good move for the Cubs to pick him up. Uh, uh, and another someone who could actually be, you know, another Verlander type situation. He, you know, could be rejuvenated and suddenly have this great uh, August and September run. That's a great point about Cole Hamels. I had no idea he had 152 wins. So this guy does win more than he... Uh, he was on a bad Philly team. He was a third starter behind Cliff Lee and Roy Halladay almost a decade ago. And I felt like he was the one that was the uh, not holding his weight in the lineup. And that's why they kind of let him go when they were rebuilding. 718 Iron Sports, two minutes until we get to Greg Gattuso, the head coach of Albany. And I got questions for him. Bryce Harper, Ira. He's been featured all across sports for basically my entire life. Everyone wants to know what's happening with Bryce Harper. He's going to get moved, I think. I can't see him staying. And you and I always have a dialogue with this, a little bit of a battle. I can't see him staying in Washington. What do you think, guy? There's just nothing out there that he's going to be traded. I, there's just there's no rumors. There's no, like Machado, there was a lot of uh, people were talking. There, 
he's having a really weird year. He's 117 strikeouts already. He's hitting 220. He's uh, 25 <laughs> home runs, 62 RBI. So he's getting the home runs. He won the home run hitting contest. Of course, he's 25 years old. He's going to be a superstar. He's thinking he's going to sign the $400 million contract. No one thinks he's going to get that. I think with Machado going to the Dodgers, I, he's banking on really the Red Sox or the Yankees giving him this big contract. Now the Yankees have Stanton. Do they really want to give Harper that money? I don't know if there's a team. And if I'm the Nationals, I'm the Nationals. Like, I'm a big market team. Like, I'm not a small market team. I, <laughs> I, can, I can have a payroll at $150, $175 million. I can afford Bryce Harper. And I think if they don't trade him, they are committed to signing him. If they don't trade him at this deadline and get anything for Harper, and then he's a free agent at the end of the year and they let him go, then that's going to be a huge loss for them. So I feel like by not trading him, they're, because they're six games out of the wild card right now. They're six games out of the, of, of the division. They, they want it. They have to go for it. They're trying to win. The, but but it, I, think they're, I think they're going for it. I think, they, they're, I think they, they're convinced they can sign Harper at the end of the year, mostly because nobody else is going to pay him a lot of money. Now, he might think he's deserved. It. He might want that money. He might say, look, I should get this money. But if no one gives it, you're only as good as the one person that gives it. If no one gives them this money, and there's very few teams in baseball that can afford, and as I said, the Dodgers, Red Sox, and Yankees might be out of that bidding. You're really searching. For, I don't think the Angels are going to do it either. It's going to be hard to find that team that's going to write Harper the $300 million check, the $250 million check to get Harper to come there. And the Nationals are like, look, we can, we can beat anyone that what, any offer that anyone else is going to have on the plate. You know, uh, Ira, you acting like the businessman that you are make a perfect point. The Yankees have no incentive to pay this guy what the, the $400 million that he's wanting to get. The Red Sox are definitely not going to do it with the way that their outfield is stacked. The Dodgers are usually the ones who throw money around that they're about to sign Harper, uh, about to sign Mikado, to an extension, which I would believe. So I, I get what you're saying, that they, there's not really a market for Bryce Harper right now. And he did not plan on this happening. He was planning on being the richest paid player ever. If we had to pick on a landing space, and I think you kind of alluded to you think he'll stay in Washington, if you could choose anywhere, you think Bryce Harper will be uniformed next year, you think it's Washington, or can you see him being somewhere else? I, it's, I think it's definitely Washington. I think Washington, they'll be back there with them. You know, I wasn't really convinced on it, but you you sold me. <laughs> These guys, there's no, there's no market for him anymore. He is the most overrated player in baseball. And he's a big name. He can hit some runs. Him winning the home run derby added a lot of credit to him. But I just really don't know if there's anyone willing to pay him for what he's done. 722 Iron Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. Greg Gattuso is coming online with us. He may be on now. Uh, we do not have him yet. Let's look one second. We love football, Ira. There's a lot of things to talk about. The Jets, first of all, they finally have Sam Darnold to sign. Do you think that this is going to be the Jets are a dysfunctional franchise? Do you think that this is going to be the turnaround for them? Well, I think that signing Sam Darnell is 
it was it was interesting that he was being held out. That everyone knew what money he was going to get. They knew that it was four years, thirty million. But the idea about being guaranteed, it was fully guaranteed. But there, these, some of these players are holding out because of concerns that if they get fined or suspended, that somehow that money is not guaranteed. But um, the the Jets are going to Jets are not going to rush him at all. They are going to take their time. They know he's their future. Uh, they have. Bridgewater and McGowan are a very good quarterback, and I, I could see him sitting out uh, most of the first year, his rookie year. There's no need for the death situation to rush Darnell in until he's ready to play. You know, it's one of those things, though. And I was having a discussion the other day with another football fan like you. You said there's no rush for Darnold. If you're the Cleveland Browns, is there a rush for Baker Mayfield? Does Baker Mayfield have to start by game six behind Tyrod Taylor. By the way, we do have Greg Atuso on the line. We'll get to him in just one minute. Um, when you draft a quarterback in the top five, I think there is a little bit of a rush behind that guy. Do you think the Jets, as a franchise they've been, really not that good? Do <laughs> you think they can wait? Or should they put Donald in now and just see what they've got? No, I think they. I, I think they need to prepare him. I think. They, I think there's no rush to put him in, and I, from all indications, you know, he's the way they they operate. I think they're going to take their time. They do have those two quarterbacks that will uh, certainly bridge the gap. There's no need. I think people are. I think the Jets fans are wanting to be. Look, by the middle of the year, you'll see what happens. But I don't think anyone's clamoring. He just got into this camp now. If unless he starts wowing them immediately, I think they're going to take their time with him. 725, this is Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Boss, I'm on here with you as well. I think we have Greg Gattuso. He's the head coach at Albany, former standout at Pennsylvania State University. Greg, you're with us. I am, Ira. How are you? Oh, Can Greg, you hear me? I'm fine. Thanks. You're on, the, you're on with uh, Mike and myself. Thanks for getting on. I appreciate it a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, as a, as a huge Penn State football fan, as I am, been to 200 games, uh, you know, you are certainly one of the greatest Penn State football players, and you, you brought them the first title in 1982, uh, winning national championship. And, and uh, so I really appreciate you coming on the show. You're uh, you had a tremendous uh, college uh, coaching career at Duquesne. You've been at Pitt as an as assistant, and now you're at Albany as a football coach. So, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about your background a little bit, but, but tell me what you're about this year. You're, you must be excited about a lot of people, are, things are looking up for Albany, and they think they're going to have a great year this year. Yeah, so I appreciate the kind words. And, we're, um, you know, we've been building this thing for the last four years. Uh, Albany was in the NEC, which is a 30-scholarship league or so, and then they decided to jump in the CAA, which is, you know, arguably the best Division One AA conference in the country. And so, you know, we've been building this thing. This is the first year. It'll be all of our recruits, and um, we're really excited. We think we're going to be a good team this year and uh, had a bunch of near misses last year, but um, the last four years have gone well, and we're really excited. We're getting ready to, you know, we actually have the staff at a, at a supporter's house right now and just getting ready for camp to start on Thursday. So we're, we're excited. That's good. Um uh, there, you know, what's exciting is that you're, but you chose your first game of the year to be, uh, I mean, it's going to be pretty tough. I mean, you want to tell about who your, your first opponent is in, in September before Labor Day weekend? Yeah, we, we start uh, September 1st. We, we have a, you know, open with the University of Pittsburgh at Heinz Field. Uh, it was 
the very first thing I did when I got the Albany job was schedule pitch just out of, you know, I love Pittsburgh. I'm born and raised and, and got many great friends there. And I just thought after four years of recruiting, it'd be nice. It's the first time that Albany will have ever played a uh, BCS program from a power five conference. And it'll be a great experience for our kids. So we're really looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can go out and play a great game and, and, and really be the, the shock of the first Saturday of the season if we can come out with a win. Oh, that would be that certainly. You know, it's so funny when I was I was at a I was in uh, in in Montauk one time at a bar watching the Appalachian State Michigan game, and and as that game was going yeah. on, and and I was like the only person at the bar watching it, and by the end, I think the everybody from the beach who was a sports fan went into the bar and was like packed to see that the final ending of that game. So uh, I guess every eyeball in America, if you somehow are leading pit in the fourth quarter, is going to be on your you know watching watching you guys. But that's great that you decided to schedule them, and it'll be exciting to see how you do. There's there's some, been some proposals uh, in the for college football to not have FCS schools play. Uh, well, as they say, one. However, people understand Division One, Division One double A, uh, and not do those type of arrangements. What's your opinion in terms of um, uh, of, of this this attitude that uh, the Penn States of the world or the Pitts of the world should not be playing Albany's and and Richmond's and those things? Well, I think that um, you're starting to see that. You know, that was a big um, uh, attempt by some people to kind of eliminate the FCS plan. But what you're seeing is even the Big Ten starting to relent, and uh, they're starting to schedule some FCS schools. You know what? It's just good for college football. It's good for those schools. Um, they're obviously they're scheduling us because they want to get a win in the beginning of the year and get their you know. Uh, what, what they perceive as an easy game, but it doesn't always work out for them that way. So, you know, it's a good experience for our players. It's something that uh, we're always a big proponent. We're able to bring some money into our budgets, and uh, they get to play a game that they feel like they can get a win going into it. So um, it's pretty much a win-win for everybody. And uh, I think I, – I doubt you'll see that end. Certainly people are trying to limit a little bit of it. But, um, you know, around the country right now, you're starting – you're continuing to see people play. Yeah, and as you just said, for the for your players, um, I mean, it's something to get them motivated in practice. Like if they're practicing in August and it's hot, and you can look at them and say, in three weeks you're going to be at Heinz Field, you're going to be playing where the Steelers play, you're going to be playing a top thirty, forty football program in the country. Like if you're going to not if you're if you're just thinking you're just going through the motions in practice, you know, if they can't get motivated by playing at Heinz Field against the Pitt Panthers, they're not, they're not going to ever get motivated. So I think it's a good way for you to get the attention of your players such at such an early time, you know, in the summer when it's hot and it's you know they're tired. It's a way to get them awake. Well, yeah, it, that's true, and, I, and I'm not sure who will be more excited about the game, the players or the coaches. You know, I coached there for six years, and I grew up there. Um, Jim Sweeney, my offensive line coach, was a star player for the Pitt Panthers. Back, we played against each other. He played for the Jets for, 60, uh, for 12 years in the NFL. Um, Nate Byam, our tight end coach, I recruited to the University of Pittsburgh. He played there, was a star there, actually played for Tampa Bay for a couple years. Um, Jared Hawley played safety, was a four-year starter at the University of Pittsburgh. He's coaching for us now. Uh, Joe Bernard, my defensive back coach, has worked for, with me at Pitt. So we've got tons of ties at Pittsburgh and a ton of ties at the University of Pittsburgh. And, you know, we're, we're all jacked up about it, excited about getting out and playing that game. Well, that, that, that's great. That's great. And you also have a tie. How about this to Miami of Florida? 
because you're one of your uh, one of the competitors for your quarterback position uh, has a nice connection to the to the University of Miami. So we're down here based in West Palm Beach talking to uh, Albany football coach Greg Gattuso. Um, so tell us a little about uh, how you were able to get Vinny Testaverde Jr. up to your school. Well, uh, Vincent was uh, at Miami at the time. Uh, his father, Vinny, was good friends from my D coordinator last year, Bernard Clark, who was a star player back in the mid-'80s uh, at Miami. It was He moved on as now the Robert Morris head football coach this past season. I'm proud and happy for Tiger and hope he does great, and he will do great. Um, but, you know, Vinny just said, hey, man, my son's looking for somewhere he wants to be happy. He's done with this you know, BCS stuff, and he just wants to go somewhere and compete, and would, you know, would Greg be interested? And I said, sure, I'd love to have him. So he's a great kid. He had a good spring. He's, you know, he's he's in the mix. He's fighting for the starting job right now, and um, we're, we're really glad to have him, and uh, I think he's made our team better, and, you know, we'll see. we got a wide-open quarterback battle, but he's certainly one of the three guys that are in the middle of it. And it's amazing. I mean, when you talked to his father, was did you get a little some of the Miami Penn State rivalry? I mean, you weren't there for the, the next in '86, but you must have had some of that, considering that his his worst loss, his father's worst loss, was to Penn State in the Fiesta Bowl. So that must have been a little. You must have talked a little bit about the Penn State Miami football rivalry. Uh, I brought it up to him, you know, and he he was he handled it uh, with class as usual. But um, you know, we had a little fun with it for sure. <laughs> And another, before we have you on, Greg, is there's been a whole conversation about how the national championship should be determined. And in the FCS division, there's, um, there's definitely a tournament and how they have it in other divisions. And then now, you know, in the division one, in the FBS, how they say it, there's, now there's four teams. And should they go to eight? Should they go to 16? You coached in division one. You coached with Pitt. You played at Penn State um, when they didn't even have any playoff at all. Uh, what's your opinion about the whole idea about the playoff system and non-playoff system, and, and, and what's, your, what's your take on that situation? You know, I, I think, you know, it's hard not to be excited about a playoff uh, system. I think FCS really does a great job with it. You know, you've got you know, the FCS playoffs, but Division two, Division three have a playoff. Um, the NFL has a playoff. Everybody has a playoff, but uh, college football, and it's it's – it's it's probably about time that that college the, you know the BCS gets it, but you know you're dealing with a lot of money, a lot of networks, a lot of power programs, and you know getting everybody on board is is probably tough. But you sure'd like to see that thing be, you know, eight or sixteen teams, and and uh, it would be fun if they can work it out. But it's really the only I I mean I don't know how many other major sports out there don't have a championship. It's it's hard to find them. Yeah, and what about the idea that I think there was a state time and when big time football like the Penn States could bring in 120 people in scholarship and there was no scholarship limits and they really could do whatever they wanted and, and sort of monopolized it. Now as scholarship limits have gone down, uh, there was some talk that some of the FCS programs like you're in that might not get as, the, the quality of players. But suddenly I think you're seeing, and I'm friends that coach high school football and everything, you're seeing a lot of players are saying, you know what, I don't know if I want to go and be the fifth or sixth string for four years at, at an Alabama, that I might want to go to an Albany where I can compete for a spot maybe my first or second year. Are you finding some changes in these high school players that are saying, I'd rather go to school, get a good education, and, I want to, and, and get a chance to play, and then, boy, if I, I do well at the school, I could, you know, I could go to an NFL combine, and I could show them what my stats are, and I could still make the NFL from, from an Albany. Are you starting to see a change like that in some of the players? 
Well, I think there's a, a certainly a a change in the concept dependent on. I, I don't. I wouldn't say that you see that with the BCS level that much. Usually, the BCS schools, the Power Five schools, kids are going to take those scholarships and not go to a FCS. But certainly, between some of the FBS schools, the uh, you know the 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 Max, the Sun Belts, the Conference USA, you, you see a, a good number of FCS uh, schools winning battles against them because ultimately it's really not a whole lot different. You know, we we've competed very well against the uh, FBS schools, and and uh, so it, it you know it there's a little bit of that. But ultimately, the truth of the matter is, a kid can achieve whatever he wants from any level. I mean, there's um, we've got a couple guys that, that in the NFL. We got a guy that this past year is with San Diego right now. It's doing really well. Um, there's a it's a it's a very blurry line um, the the level of talent, especially between FBS and FCS. I think when you get into the BCS stuff, those guys are pretty much sticking to the taking those scholarships at the Power Five conferences. This is uh, 95.9, 106.9 FM in West Palm Beach, the True Oldies. We're talking to Greg Gattuso, the Albany football coach. Uh, he was 11 years at Duquesne. He won eight conference championships in 11 years. It's a 118-56 college record. Um, Greg, one, more, one question about Albany, and then I want to turn to Penn State for one more question, is I heard that you've done, you know, your facilities are pretty good there. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you've made some good ad- advancements. If you want to talk a little about you know, what you, you know, your facilities at Albany and, 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 and in terms of how you're upgrading it and, and making it as competitive as possible. Yeah, we've, we've, um, we have a beautiful stadium. I think, you know, we don't have the biggest stadium, but we, we have, we can, our top capacity is about 9,000, almost 10,000, depending on if people are sitting on the berm. Um, we, we're doing a good job drawing people into our games. Um, we, we're not one of those FCS schools that has a 35,000-seat stadium and, and uh, 8,000 people in it or 6,000 people in it. So um, I like that about our place. It's, uh, it's a great stadium, a great venue. Um, we've, we've got new meeting rooms and some facilities that uh, we've grown into. And, you know, the, really the next step for us is we're working on, a, on a, a weight room. I'm sorry, a locker room right now. And, um, you know, I feel, you know, we're really progressing along. The school's been great. You know, they, they believe we can be good in this conference. And, you know, we're fighting for it. And, and I think facilities are a big part of it. You know, kids, kids want to come somewhere. They shop with their eyes and they want to see what you have to offer them. And uh, we do a great job with our facilities. We do a great job. Last year, we wore 11 different combinations of uniforms. Uh, we've done a really good job, three helmets and a bunch of different uh, uniforms we wear, and, and I think the kids really like that stuff. So, we're, you know, we're doing good things, and uh, the facilities are a big part of it, and we're continuing to grow as we move on in the CAA. Wow, that's great. That's great. And one, one final question. I was 13, 14 years old in that 1982 team, um, not only did you win the national championship, I mean, you had to be part of some of the most iconic NCAA football games, winning against number two ranked Nebraska at home, losing at Alabama when they were fourth ranked in a, in a tremendous game, then beating the West Virginia at West Virginia. You won at Notre Dame when they were 13th in the country, and then you beat a fifth ranked Pitt team before you played Georgia with Herschel Walker in the Superdome to win the national title. I mean, do you, do you look back at that year and say, wow, that was like, you know, what is your, in terms of just putting in that perspective, and you've had all these years of coaching, where does that year rank, and, and what are your memories from that year? Well, it's, it's, there's, there's so many, and, you know, one of my uh, good friends, Julius Kant, actually just wrote a book about that team in the t- year before and, and all that went into winning, but 
there's a lot of numbers for old time fans that you know we we had the hardest schedule in the country that year and and to to go through go through what we what we went through to win a national championship and Pitt really Pitt wasn't fifth they were first when we beat them you know they were the they were number one team in the country that that year and we beat them and went on to beat Georgia so it was a it was a pretty special time. It, it, it's a rare to play that many ranked teams. You don't see it anymore. Um, people just don't play those kind of games because people aren't independents anymore. Um, and it was an incredible group of people, uh, obviously a great group of coaches. And, um, you know, it was just – we probably weren't the biggest or fastest, but we were a great football team, and, and uh, everybody played really hard and well together. And, you know, it was a magical year. I mean, great memories and uh, – to, to be able to play in those games and, and um, to, to be part of a national championship in any sport or anything is is a dream come true for all of us. And, and I have great memories of it. And, you know, I just, you know, we don't talk a lot about it at Albany, but I think the kids understand, you know, that, that I was part of something special and, and I think they respect um, how we do things. And, and, um, and that's ultimately the goal is to try to win a championship. So it was a great time. and um, But it's getting a long time ago now, Ira. It's been... It's been a few years, so I'm starting to lose some of those memories. But <laughs> don't don't ever lose them. I, book. <laughs> I would I would I, you know I I would love to read that book. And Greg, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about Albany. We'd love to have you back. You know, in the middle of the year later, tell how your year's going, and we'll, you know, definitely, I'll have you. I would love to have you back after you beat Pitt that first week. You know, when you, I think ESPN and everyone in the world's going to interview you for that after that victory when you win that. But um, it's great, and I love hearing about your program and you know the fact that uh, Vinny Testaver Jr. from Miami is going all the way up to Albany. I think you're, you know, certainly there's this, you know, uh, Florida is a football hotbed, and uh, hopefully yep. uh, players will, you know, definitely keep you guys in mind for. For being going to school, but I appreciate you coming on and uh, and thanks for thanks for coming on. Sure, you know, and if we beat Pitt, I'll, you'll be the first one on the speed dial, and maybe we'll bring Phil Riccio on to talk with us too. So we'll get some <laughs> well, Phil. Some well, good just for our listeners, Phil Riccio is the person who helped me get Greg on the show, and Phil is a former coach at Altoona High School and uh, one of the best coaches in Pennsylvania. And, uh, again, I think what Greg appreciates is you know, the, what, what's the bedrock of football is the high school football coaches and all across the country, in Florida and Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, people like Phil Riccio are, uh, just have been tremendous for football, so we appreciate them. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So you're listening at one at ninety five nine one hundred six point nine, the True Oldies Channel. We just t- talked to Greg Gattuso, coach of Albany, um, and uh, they have a tough game at Pitt first week of the season. And we're going to have Kelly Pavlik come on shortly. Uh, Kelly, are you on right now? Yes, I am. I guess he's not. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Uh, oh yeah, Kelly. Thanks for getting on. So Kelly. Um, this is Ira Kaufman. We're on Ira on Sports. Um, I'm broadcasting. Uh, our station is in West Palm Beach, but I'm in what, Cape May, New Jersey. And a few years ago, I came here with my friend Sam Shapiro, who introduced me, of course, to you. And, and we went to see your fight against Jermaine Taylor at uh, Boardwalk Hall, uh, one of the greatest events. I've been to thousands of sporting events, but one of the greatest I've ever been to. Um, Want to talk about that night a little bit uh, when you won the World Middleweight Championship? Oh, well, yeah, that was a big night, <clears throat> um, obviously, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it was a real championship fight, and 
you know, just everything about it, you know, the, uh, the fans from Youngstown that made that trip, you know, six hour drive and the atmosphere, the way the fight unfolded, uh, you know, for a while there, I didn't want to talk about it. So I wasn't that excited or I wasn't a big fan of the fact of getting dropped, you know, that ego thing. And then as the years passed, uh, you know, I realize now that that's what made that fight what it is even to the, uh, till today. You know, the the comeback and everything else with that fight. So, uh, yeah, it was just a, a tremendous fight. And again, all the fans from Youngstown, and then you had, you know, 4,000 boxing gurus who were just there anyways, you know, cheering for me, and then you had a handful for Taylor. And um, there was a lot of things about it. You know, I was actually just talking with uh, Coach Trussell at this charity benefit, and, you know, that, that was what we were talking about. And I brought it up to him. I said, you know, I, I think that's the first time I've seen two college teams literally face off in a boxing match. You know, Frank <laughs> Taylor had the uh, Arkansas Razorback trunks on. I had the um, Ohio State trunks on with the patented Ohio State trunks where we had to get the uh, permission from athletic director to wear those and it was just you know so everything that went into that fight was just you know uh, unbelievable I guess to say so you're knocked down in the second round of the fight and and it happened fast and 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 it, and it just seemed you know, Taylor had never been beaten he was undefeated had beat Bernard Hopkins looked like he was you know just this super fighter and you could have quit I mean the second round but it's like you went back to the corner, and I, I was pretty close. I was in like in the fifth row for that fight, and you just like smiled at your trainer, Jack Lowe. You just gave him this smile, like I'm okay, I got this. And like, how were you able to get your wits? Like, what what were you thinking at the? Were you thinking anything, or what was thinking after you got knocked down? And, and what gave you the confidence to go and take that fight and then knock Taylor out? Well, the thing with that is, and I know it sounds crazy, but I knew after that after that round, after taking that shot. It really was what I would say a lucky shot. Jermaine Taylor's a strong kid, and, and uh, he's a hell of a fighter, obviously, or was a hell of a fighter. And he hit me, though, with that punch, and he caught me in a spot of equilibrium right behind the air. And I was there mentally. The legs were just gone. You know, it's not like one of the shots where you get caught on the, on the chin and you're kind of out of it. Um, I, I could literally hear certain people in the stands. I could pinpoint who's saying what. Um but I knew after all the punches that he threw, and I kept holding on, and my legs came back at the end of the second round. And a little bit of it was just trying to reassure my trainer in the corner that I'm good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because when you got a little bit of ease in the corner, it's a little things go a little better. Um, and then the other part was that I, I knew though, at that point he threw a lot of punches in that second round. I knew what type of shape I was in, what the type of conditioning I, uh, condition I was in. And also, Jermaine Taylor was the type of guy, after watching all the film, we knew he got tired as the later rounds, the longer the fight went. So getting through that round was, was a big thing, and I was actually more confident. I, I got that knockdown out the way. Didn't want to, but we got it out the way, and it was time to move on. And you could see as when I went into that third round. The third round, I threw almost over 100 punches, and I backed him up and, and clearly won the round. So... You know, I just knew like after that second round, shake the, you know, shake everything off. I had a minute break, and that was going to be fine the rest of the fight. Right. So, you win that fight. You were the world champion of the world, 
and then Taylor puts the rematch clause back. And, you know, we talk about these rematches, but sometimes they don't happen. I mean, there was no Pacquiao Mayweather. So, but it was weird that you guys, not weird, but it was, like, very ironic that a few months later in February, so we fought in September, then you come back in February and have to be, fight him again in Las Vegas at MGM. was there also for that fight. Again, an amazing atmosphere. Um, but there you sort of dominated that fight more than, than the first in terms of having control of the fight. What was your thought going into that second fight, you know, knowing that Taylor wanted, you know, Taylor wanted that fight back again, wanted to get his title back. What, uh, what, was, what were your thoughts going into that fight? You know, uh, actually, I had a, a lot of motivation for that fight, to be honest with you, and then to go out there and prove people wrong. Because going into that fight, of course, um, certain fans of the boxing world and, and everything else, they were saying that if I didn't knock Jermaine Taylor out, then I stood no chance of winning. You know, I can't beat him by decision. His boxing skills are far too superior. Which, you know, my opinion in the first fight, I've watched it um, over and over. The first round I won. I was winning part of the second round until I got dropped. Came back, I won the third round. Um, and I was saying, I literally gave Jermaine Taylor, other than the second round, I gave him two other rounds. So three rounds going into the seventh. I had, it was 3-3, three, three, but for the 10-8 round. So that fight was still close. Um, you know, the second fight, I knew that I kind of wanted. You know, I was hoping that I didn't knock him out again. Of course, if the knockout came, you take it. Any <laughs> time you get a fight over with, you know, you want to do it. But I was actually glad that the outcome of that fight was a 12-round decision to prove the people wrong. You know, everybody thought that, oh, he's just a power puncher, and if you can't knock him out, he ain't going to win. And I think, you know, going in there showing people um, that I can't fight, you know, that Getting signed with top rank wasn't because I was knocking people out in the amateurs. You know, getting signed was because I was a hell of a fighter. Um, you know, my actually beginning of my pro career, I was I fought very slick. I had a very slick style, and you know, over time when the knockouts started coming, you know, my trainer kind of molded me into the one-one-two, don't back up, back him up type uh, style. So yeah, I would say that second fight that, that was what was nice about that fight was being able to go in there and beat him over a 12-round period. So Now we're talking to Kelly Pavlik, who's the former world middleweight champion of the world. Uh, 40 wins and two losses, 34 of the 40 by knockout, which is amazing. And one other fight I wanted to bring up is your Miranda fight, which is the one that sort of puts you on the scene. I mean, before that, Edison Miranda, and I was preceding the Taylor fights, I mean, people were thought, you know, you're, the odds against you – tremendous. I mean, no one gave you a shot against that fight. And it was in Memphis. And I think that's when you shot on the scene that everyone was like, wow. I mean, that's, uh, and that made you the number one contender by winning that. But what was your thought in terms of how they were, t- you know, being able to, with all odds against you in that fight? I mean, everyone, no one was giving you a shot at all and to pull an upset like you did. Yeah, well, you know, actually, the funny part about that fight starts off with the fight before that. That was actually after seven years of being uh, pro and having a great record and knockout ratio. Um, I had that fight Zartucci and, and knocked him out, a brutal knockout. I think it was up for knockout of the year. And that was actually supposed to be the number one mandatory for the WBC world title. So after I beat Zartucci, I was more so waiting for the phone call to say, Kelly, you're fighting for the uh, world title. And unfortunately, that wasn't what happened. I got a phone call saying, hey, Kelly, um, you got to fight Edison Miranda next. <laughs> it's pretty mandatory. <laughs> I, I was, oh, my I God. Was 
Yeah, I was upset. I, I uh, said, you know what? I go, I was the number one mandatory against Artucci. I mean, they gave me the big medal after the fight. I got to fight Ennis Miranda now. A guy who everybody's avoiding in the sport. You know, nobody wants to fight him. He had one loss to uh, Arthur Abraham, and where he broke Arthur Abraham's jaw like five different places and literally won the fight. And I go, I got to fight this guy now. Like, yeah. So, of course, you know, I, <laughs> the type of fighter I was, all right, let's, let's do it. And, you know, the game plan going for that fight was not to go straight back. Uh, the one time that I do really agree with that, you know, training regimen that I went through. But we knew that Edison Miranda couldn't hit that hard going backwards himself. So it was kind of a fight like, put on your bulletproof vest, and we're going to go take some, some bombs coming in, but we're going to back him up and show him who got the power. And that's that's what that fight came down to. Uh, he lived up to everything they said. I mean, he did hit hard, brutally hard. But, you know, my power, my conditioning, my work work rate throughout the fight, um, it just overwhelmed him. And, and you see in the seventh round of that fight, you know, how beat up his face was. Um, he had no answer for it. And every shot that I hit him with from the first round on, he carried. You know, and that, that was a show of my power. But... Yeah, you know, that fight was obviously every bit as important as as a Taylor fight to me. Just everything that was involved with that fight. Yeah, I had nobody was giving me a chance in hell to win that fight. I remember at the press conference, um, Miranda and Taylor were, you know, bickering back and forth between each other. And I got up to the podium and I said, Gee, I don't even know I was fighting tomorrow night. <laughs> nobody was, they weren't even talking about me. Um, but yeah, you know, like I said, that. Nobody gave me a chance for that fight. Um, this guy was a crazy, uh, scary, they called him Godzilla in boxing. And to be able to not only beat him, but like, you know, destroy him in seven rounds, that was uh, pretty big. And then you got, after you beat Taylor, you were able to come. I went to your two fights in Youngstown, and that must have been pretty cool to be able to be the world you know, middleweight lineal champion. There was no challenge. Everybody knew you were the middleweight champion in the world. There was, you know, not like five interims and this and that and the temporary and all that stuff. I mean, you were the champion. You were the middleweight champion in the world. And be able to fight in Youngstown with that belt, walk in the ring in Youngstown, your hometown, like, it must have been great to you defended against Barrera, which was a, a Rubio, Marco Antonio Rubio, which was a good fight. Oh, yeah. And uh, Espino. Well, uh, tell me yeah, about that, being that able to change. Yeah, that was big, you know, coming off, coming back down two weight classes. Uh, you know, I fought Hopkins. I jumped up two weight classes to fight him at light heavyweight. And then coming, you know, back down, Rubio, who ended up going on to win uh, a lot of fights after that knockout. He actually, I believe, won a world title. And then he knocked out that David Lemieux, who was 25-0 and with 25 knockouts. <laughs> but another fight where, I guess, a good fighter, um, to be able to do it in Youngstown to the title, uh, what an amazing crowd that turned out for that fight. And, yeah, and then another fight where I, you know, I went in there and, and won every round and put a, a boxing lesson on a very good fighter in Rubio. So that was really nice. Yeah, the atmosphere was, it was electric. It was uh, big. And at the end of your career, there was a lot of talk where you're going to fight Andre Ward. 
And that fight just never happened. And I think that would have been just a monster fight. I know Ward, I think, backed out of the first fight. But is there a reason why it, it just never, the Andre Ward, I mean, because it seemed like you would be the type of fighter that would really have given Ward that, that might have, you know, would have blemished his record. So what, is there, what, why did that fight, why did it just, there was so much talk of that for so long, but it just it didn't well, need to happen. There, there was talks of every which reason why I retired. I mean, the, the rumors and, Everything else, and it was actually got so sickening. Um, but the, the main reason I ended up going to California uh, in 2012, very beginning of 2012. And, and to be honest with you, it was unbelievable to go out there and train with Garcia. Uh, the things that I learned, it was just a hell of an experience. And, but it, also at that point, usually when you up and leave your home, you do that at the beginning of your career when. You don't have a whole title when you didn't make the money when, and when you ain't got a family. That's when kids go and they have to go somewhere where they can isolate and become world champions. Um, I'm at the end of my career. You know, I was already pro 12 years. That's a long time. And they ended up sending me to California. And I, at that point, I kind of lost it a little bit in the heart. And boxing is not the hobby to have, you know, <laughs> when, when that happens. But I stuck through it. And they got me a fight, which I understand because it was my first fight with Robert Garcia. They got me uh, Aaron Jaco. And then the second fight, though, they turned around and there was no, not really nobody out there to fight. And they got me Scott Sigmund. And then the third fight, because of the Super 6 uh, tournament going on and everything else, I ended up fighting Roel Rosinski. And so there was really no meaningful fights out there. And all of a sudden, I get hit with the option to fight Andre Ward. And for some reason, like, all that love came, like, that motivation and drive to go train and, and really be, like, ready for it, that was there, and I was really pumped up for that. But unfortunately, Andre Ward ended up getting that uh, shoulder injury that he had to have surgery on and kept him out for, I don't know exactly how long, I want to say almost two years, or a little over two years. Um, and then there was a legitimate injury. And so when that fight fell out, there was, again, there was really no meaningful fights out there. Not only not a real title fight, but there just wasn't no big fight. And I kind of, at that point, I really I was done with it. Um, again, I was pro long enough, in my opinion, 42 uh, fights. Uh, there was no no drive for me to really want to fight. And that, that was the main reason for, for retiring. Mm-hmm. So what... These days, what are you what are you working on? What projects and, and things? I know that you're involved in some business adventures and those things, but what have you been doing mostly in terms of enjoying, you know, looking back at your absolutely tremendous uh, reign in terms of middleweight champion of the world in your career, which is uh, one of the most exciting fighters I've ever seen in my entire life. And not just me, but if, you're, if I bring your name up to almost anybody around the country and I travel, everyone knows you are, and they, love, they loved your fights. I mean, that's the one good thing. There's other fighters that people may yell, yeah, that was a good fighter, but they go, I loved watching him box. And that's, that's a great compliment. They just, people enjoyed your fights, they remember your fights. And, uh, but what, what, do you, what have you been up to uh, in the last couple of years? Yeah, I, I, I truly appreciate that, too, the compliment and everything. Um, you know, I, I've been busy. Uh, the first two years, I I took off and I I enjoyed my retired life. Uh, I ain't gonna lie, I had fun and I didn't care, and I didn't care if I got mad. And I had my investments, and that was all about sitting on my butt and just looking at my phone. And then after after that, you know, it, it gets boring. 
I have actually I purchased a gym outside of Youngstown uh, Fitness Gym, and I do powerlifting now. I'm involved in that, and I promote some shows with that, like meets. And I got, like I said, I got my uh, fitness gym that's going very well, and is getting. We've only had it since uh, the end of December, and it's jam packed. I have a podcast show, which right now is, is really taking off, and we're in talks with some big. Uh, big stations that want to sign sign us so we're we're doing that right now also the podcast it's um the punchline with kelly pavlik and james dominguez or you could find it go to punchline.live and then i'll pull up all of our archive shows and past shows and then you know um we're on facebook live that's really taken off that i cover fights i mean i've pretty much been in and out of town almost every month uh, that keeps me keeps me really busy, and then uh, you know the big one that I'm really excited for is I'm looking to open up a boxing gym, a really nice boxing gym, uh, you know, in the Youngstown area, and I would like to have that by by winter. So, you know, just a lot of different things that I'm involved in and and keeping me busy. And of course, my kids got me, you know, they're in a bunch of different sports and music and stuff like that. So, I'm on the go. Well, that's great. I mean. You're certainly a great ambassador. I mean, every time I've been at your fights and afterwards, I mean, I, I've seen you win at, at winning and losing, and you've been gracious to people. I, I, kids come up to you. You're signing autographs. I, I've never seen you turn down an autograph to anybody, even after you fought a tremendous fight. Uh, you're just certainly a, a quality person to, to be so nice to everyone, and, and certainly the young fans look up to you. I guess the one, one final question, uh, you know, the one, the one match that everyone's been talking about this whole summer, and I wish there was some more to talk about, but uh, Canelo and Triple G in September. What's your, what's your feeling on that, on, that, on that fight? I actually got tired of talking on that, talking about <laughs> that one. <laughs> you know, 2017 and so far 2018, Boxing has been rejuvenated. I mean, it's, there's been a lot of big fights, and the welterweight division right now, late heavyweight division, is really, really hot. The uh, the Triple G, you know, I covered the first one. It was actually like my really first, the first time in five years that I was out in the public of, of boxing, and it was a nice welcoming. I mean, uh, I thought I was fighting again. People didn't want to talk about my. I was there covering it for my podcast. And they wanted to ask me about my career and about fighting Triple G. And I said, listen, I was like, I ain't ever fighting that kid. <laughs> I said, I'm retired and I'm 230 pounds. But uh, I thought the first fight, I gave uh, Canelo the first three rounds. And then I, I thought Triple G won the rest of the fight every round. And But it's not because Triple G is that much better than Canelo. I thought Canelo literally handed Triple G that fight. Um, Triple G, the last couple fights, anyways, has looked, you know, his age. And in boxing, 36 is not young. It's not young at all. And a lot of fighters, you know, age at that. In sport, baseball, you hear a guy 36 years old, he's considered a veteran, and his career is about done. Um, boxing is a lot harder than baseball as far as physically, you know, your body and the physical shape that you're in and the reflexes and everything else. Um, so Father Time catches up with everybody differently, and I think that Triple G has been showing that a little bit in his last fights. And I think Canelo just, if he fought a smarter fight, he could have probably easily have won that fight. Um, I think this time Triple G is a year and some months older. Um, 
you know, and I, and I think Canelo you know, will study the film and see how successful he was in the beginning of the fight. And I know he had an injured hand. We actually, I spotted that before the fight even started when he came out with the gloves. You know, the gloves that he had on were made for if you had hand injuries. I think this fight, if he goes back to the drawing board and, and watches film, you know, he can make this fight easy. Um, uh, but on the flip side of it, when you're a triple G and you hit as hard as he does, anything can happen as soon as you get caught with a good shot. And or the whole fight could change. So, you know, if I was to bet on the fight, I, I would probably, you know, go with Canelo. But I, I think it's, it's still pretty good for boxing. The unfortunate drug uh, drug thing that's going on with Canelo, um, I think that's going to haunt him the rest of his career, you know, whether he loses or if he wins, you know. It, it's just bad. It's a bad situation that he was in. But everybody still wants to see the fight. So... Well, you're talking. You're listening. You're listening to the former middleweight champion of the world, Kelly Pavlik. This is uh, 95.9, 106.9, the two oldies in West Palm Beach. And Kelly, thank you for coming on. Before you leave, you can uh, again give me your links to your podcast because uh, down in West Palm Beach, boxing is very, very popular, and uh, and certainly I'm, we have a lot of listeners that enjoy would would love to hear your comments and everything. So before you go, just give me your uh, your uh, connections in terms of the getting on the podcast and how we can listen. To it. Okay. Yeah. Again, the uh, one of the easiest ways for our website with past shows with uh, former champions and trainers is just go to the search box and put in punchline dot live, and I'll pull up our website with all the shows and our upcoming shows. Or you can go right to YouTube and put in uh, the punchline with Kelly Pavlik and James Dominguez. Okay, fantastic. Well, Kelly, I really appreciate you you coming on on such late on on, on notice, and I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I can't wait to hear your commentary, you know, going forward in boxing. And again, thank you for everything you've done. I've gone to so many sporting events, and as I said, your your wins and your losses have been one of the most exciting events. And I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show on I Run Sports. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for the compliments, man. I'll be talking with you. Okay, thank you. All right. So, with, so everybody, it's Ira from Iron Sports. Thanks for coming on. We're going to be back in studio next week with Mike and Sean. Um, we're going to finish the trade deadline. We'll see. Talk about what happened in the Major League Baseball. Um, certainly, NFL training camps are getting to go. There's, you know, the key thing when you look at the NFL is like what injuries happen. I mean, are you going to be able to get through without injuries? Who's going to get to the start game that's been first week of September healthy? And I think that's what I always look for. It's not sort of like what, you know, this is happening and who's what position. You're sort of looking for health. Can they get through training camp and, the, and, the, and, and you know, healthy? That's the key thing. And we're going to talk about the NBA and LeBron's and the Leonard DeRozan trade and Carmella Anthony and Capella and where Dwayne Wade is going to go, uh, which might be decided this week. And we're going to be able to talk about the Firestone, uh, which Tiger has won eight out of 16 times. <laughs> I mean, to have a record where he's won out of seven out of nine years, he won uh, in Akron this week. And then the following week is going to be the PGA Championship in St. Louis. So we have a lot of exciting things to talk about between baseball and football, basketball, golf, tennis coming up too, so with the, the American Swing. But uh, thank you for listening to Iron Sports, and we'll be back next Monday night at 7.05 uh, with Mike and Sean. Thank you very much.